Welcome to The Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at the Post and Courier. So today it's the brand makeover edition of The Winnow because uh, we're going to talk about institutions, perhaps food in the food world, restaurants, food brands, people uh, working on their image, working on their on their brand and trying to, to make it over. And Emory, we sort of got into this topic, I think, from you because you recently were traveling and yep. came across a, a, a restaurant that has – undergone a brand makeover. Yeah. Um, okay. So I've, I've been to Amsterdam now for three years in a row. And actually, this this didn't happen in Amsterdam. It happened in, in the Netherlands. But um, we, we went to go visit a college friend of mine um, in a kind of a small town in the Netherlands. And, you know, we were out drinking as, as one does <laughs> um, at night. And as happens, you you know you get hungry, and she recommended this uh, chain that I've I've kind of seen around, but she informed us that it's it's gone through a big rebranding in the last year, and it's called Febo. It's F E B O. It was actually a really really interesting experience. It is an automat, which Americans might have some familiarity with, like. But it's kind of an old timey thing, I think. Hannah and I are both big fans. Of the <laughs> yeah, automat. we've talked about the automat. Love <laughs> yeah, the automat. I love the automat. It's um, but so if you don't know what an automat is, um, it is basically a restaurant sized vending machine. You walk into it, and it's I guess it's it's kind of like um a post office. There's just like all these little boxes on the wall with little glass windows, and you see what you want, and you just put some coins in, and then the little door opens, and you can grab what you want out of. The little slot and it's kept warm in the slot and everything. Yeah, they were huge in the really 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, in, in big cities, particularly for urban workers to go grab lunch, uh, you know, a quick meal. Yeah. And there, of course, there are people behind the scenes cooking the food and putting them on the plates mm-hmm. in the little thing, but it's basically, yeah, a, uh, I like the, the description. It's a restaurant or a, uh, walking into a vending machine. Nope. You know, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's basically the situation. I mean, there is a counter where you can, Order some things mm-hmm. like made to order. They specialize in, in fries there. Um, who, who do you complain to if there's a problem? Well, there, there's a there's a, a there's somebody counter. there. Yeah, okay. there, there's a there's a, a register that you could go and make traditional orders. But at. in this case, you said this is this is truly an old. No solid. reason to complain. You're yeah. actually putting coins into. Yeah, the, you're, the you're actually in, you're actually putting in, coins into in the thing. There's there's. Well, I mean, you have to remember too. In Europe, the euro coins are a big deal. They have like dollar and two euro coins. Um, Can you dip a Card because so card? they no, but there's it's it's like any place it's like an arcade there's they a, a there's coin a, machine. there's an, yeah there's a coin machine and an ATM over in the corner yeah I mean that's interesting I'm not sure why the, everything there they have like contactless like mm-hmm. chip card readers everywhere I'm not sure exactly you know maybe there's just they haven't invested in installing that it does seem like it would be convenient but um and, and the food is is pretty basic it's your basic you know fast food fare. Um, kind of with a Dutch twist. There's a lot of croquette, basically everything that you can deep fry. It's <laughs> it's also a little bit amusing because you can see the the freezer is glass and it's behind. So you're looking through the the glass doors. Behind there are where the workers are, and then there's a little counter, and then behind them is just a giant like grocery store freezer. Um, so you can actually see all the frozen food before it's been cooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was a little bit interesting. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, that the, takes open kitchen to sort of a new level. Yeah. You can see the freezer. Usually, like, that's not. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's an experience I've never had here. It's so cheap. Everything is like under three bucks. 
and it's immediate. You just like see what you want, you get it immediately. Do people treat it like a, a, a cafeteria, like a commercial cafeteria, or like a college cafeteria? Do you get up and down and up and down, or do you get your meal and then sit and have there's, like a proper there's meal? Like, no, no, no. It's it's very fast. Okay. Like in fact, I think I think the thinking is more like it's street food. Like you're really ah okay. not. There's maybe seating like. For six people total okay. in the Got whole it. restaurant. Like y- you could go sit down in the back, but it's clearly designed more to just like get you in and out really quickly. Okay. Cause I think I'm thinking back again in the forties or thirties, yeah. you see like all these dramatic black and white pictures of, you know, the working woman and she looks so tired. So She's sitting at, a table at the Hornet with a, with a, mat. With, yeah. with a China yeah, yeah, cup. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So is it everything sort of packaged to go? So you can just oh, grab yeah. it and walk right out. You yeah. don't have to yeah. know yeah. a plate or anything yeah. like that. Exactly. Um, and then there, there is like space. So it's not that yeah. different than the station at the Seven Eleven, where they have the no, microwave. It's, yeah, it's it. it's pretty pretty similar to that, yeah. except um, unlike the station at the Seven Eleven, the Fabo is popping. <laughs> at, there, there are depends on your Seven Eleven. Well, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, yeah. So that's the second part of this. Is is my my Dutch friend informed me that Fabo has kind of gone through a renaissance in the last year. Uh, it's it's actually a very old story. I looked it up. It started in 1941. And you know it has a dedicated fan base. It's not like it's not like it sucks or anything. But they went through. They did a, a big concerted rebrand in the last year. Really, really focused on trying to get young people in there, like college students and hoodlums. I guess you know, <laughs> I don't know. The, the, pe- the, the pe- kind of people who are out late at night and, and about, want to right. go yeah. drop coins and grab in. Who, who want? You know, who want? Quick bite to eat. Yeah, a, a quick chicken burger at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, that could be anybody. Yeah, and so they they teamed up with um, some Dutch artists. They actually launched a like a kind of a pop up store with a bunch of Fabo branded clothes and. Like slippers and bags and stuff, and they sold out because like, hoodlums are so fashionable. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it's it's Fabo streetwear. Okay, you know? I like it. Yeah, yeah. So I I thought this this was all very interesting, um, and I'm very sad that we don't have this here. It, it it was like all so cheap and so small. This concept could just like kill on King Street. I I can imagine. Yeah, I don't know what it would take to get something like that here. It sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I. I that, we, we've get a, we've talked about this before though, that a lot of these automated concepts, so to speak, don't seem to work. I mean, yeah. they, they've tried a number of them in San Francisco, obviously where Silicon Valley is, and they just do not resonate with it's, consumers. It, I'm, I'm curious about the branding thing as as well. Um, like, it doesn't resonate, but could could you make it resonate through enough you know enough marketing and branding? The right spokesperson. Um, yeah, and, and streetwear shop. I'm also curious about the streetwear. So do you have to have the brand first before you start selling the clothing? Mm-hmm. Or just the fact that you have a storefront selling the clothing makes people Right. Well, it's, I, I don't know if either of you saw this, but um, there's a, an electronic music festival called Ultra. And KFC paid to have a person wear a Colonel Sanders helmet and then go out there and perform at this EDM festival like Kentucky Fried Chicken music, and it it really <laughs> bombed. Uh, the The reception was not very positive. Wait, like, wait, I, what was Kentucky Fried Chicken music? Was it like jingles throughout the years? No, or just, so- I mean it's just like generic techno music, but like you know, instead of like sci fi quotes, it's just like ah, okay, you know, 
This feels all yeah. Tell Eleven like spices. Some right, corporate right. guy saying we've got yeah. to get in with the young yeah. crowd. Well, and that's exactly they how like it ended up music. looking. It, yeah. it, it it was very like very astroturfed, and actually, I think a lot of people were like mad because they're they're thinking like this is like basically KFC took away somebody's opportunity right. to like <laughs> like an actual artist to perform to do to do their, <laughs> their commercial fried chicken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. So that's that's kind of interesting. Like I'm not. Not enough of a branding expert yeah. to know exactly what what causes some stunts like that to fail, but I mean, I, I think you or, could imagine Fabo being it, or did it fail? I guess is the other question because you know back in the there's no such thing as bad publicity right. notion. KFC has something weird going on of like an anti brand brand, like where they right. keep switching up the different Saturday Night Live actors playing the Colonel. They had the whole Colonel break dancing thing a while back, and it, it's almost like. Their marketers couldn't be so bad that they keep just doing these things. It's almost mm-hmm. like they're on purpose trying to create right bad uh, ads that will get people talking about them. Um, right. I feel like now we're getting really close to that recent story about sweet grain. Did you all see this yeah. one? I right, not. where oh. it, it, they're it, they're being accused, and it seems rightly so, according to reporting laid out in the story of. Um, cultural appropriation, if not culinary appropriation. So they're selling salads, um, but they're selling them to white people, at least uh, based on where the their stores are located. But um, all of their like lingo, what they call their salads, all of the uh, like T-shirts that they sell, and this reminded me we were talking about streetwear, um, is all drawn from hip hop culture. Mm. So mm-hmm. there's another example of branding where it seems a little off. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I guess what I, what I was getting at though is, Fabo Streetwear is maybe a bit like KFC Streetwear. Like it's it's about the same level of like weirdness as imagining like seeing like some cool person walking down the street wearing a KFC hoodie. Yeah, because I, I guess that's the thing so, that, that, that I don't. I'm just now understanding is that Fabo was a longstanding brand, so people are in, yeah, you know, they have exactly. already have associations with yep. it, and it's not cool hip place to go right. at night. Yeah. But but for whatever reason, it seems like this brand this branding effort seemed to kind of connect with people in a, in a more organic way than than maybe some of these other examples I can mm-hmm. I can point out. Wait, and so again, so just so I understand, they were an automat format previously or that oh, was yeah. part yeah, of they, the, they've that's always, what they always, always have been, been an automat. And yeah. so what do you attribute the success to? I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard not being a Dutch person and, and not having been there through the the process, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's I I am I'm, I'm not entirely sure like why why people think you know, you you slap a Fabo logo on on some hoodies and on some slippers, and that's cool. Right. But you know, you do that with like a KFC logo, and maybe people think, oh, like that's that's astroturf. We like, sort of had a similar phenomenon here in the U.S. with you know, after all the craft beers are out, and everybody was oh, hipsters of the sort of the people wearing Miller High for PBR shirts and buying you know, not exactly the same thing, but it's a little mm-hmm. bit of a, a roll back to like, okay, I'm not. I'm intentionally selecting an uncool thing to, and make it cool, you know, right. turn, it, turn it into a cool thing. So I, I think right, but it sounds like this wasn't a grassroots effort, although oh, in no. some cases that wasn't either, but this was very no, this much. Was like yeah. A, 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 yeah a, right, a and certainly some of the thing. big brands have seized on that, but I feel like maybe 20 years ago when people were drinking Natty Light, it was on purpose, yeah. like Bro, this yeah. is, I'm cooler yeah. than you think I am sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the best I can say is, I, I mean, I know that they did partner with like, artists that also have cachet and mm-hmm. maybe that's that's part of it hmm. um yeah certainly getting somebody who's a celebrity or somebody who's already f- yeah. famous to be seen with your brand is mm-hmm. 
all this, especially in this age, is a surefire route to. Well, not surefire, but it can be expensive. But it's right. a it's a good route to. to, to yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting because I when we we talked about we talked about this earlier that uh, or, or before we started recording, it made me think about various other restaurant chains and restaurant. So I think it's hard to rebrand a restaurant. You know, really hard. It's uh, you know a lot of like independent restaurants who want to go a different direction. They usually just shut down and, and remodel and put a whole new name on the restaurant, even if it's the same owner. That that tips and creates a whole new brand. It's really hard, I think, to go shift brands uh, from from one thing to another. And I was trying to think of of restaurants who have successfully done it. Um, McDonald's has been trying for years to change its image. It can't. I mean, it's a fast food restaurant. That's it's going to be a fast food restaurant <laughs> where people go with their kids and you know, or, or you're you're you, you're traveling. You want a quick bite. Um, one I did think of, it more in the barbecue world, is uh, Smoky Bones, which was – at one point was one of the Darden restaurants. Darden owned mm-hmm. Olive Garden and a bunch of others. And they, they, all, they ran into trouble and all, uh, rethought a lot of things. But they actually used – Smoky Bones was originally a barbecue restaurant. That was their brand. And they had the, <laughs> like this just sort of patently ludicrous backstory about how there's some guy named Smokey or something like that who made a barbecue pit out of a – pipeline and you know it just made no sense at all but you know it, that was they had their brand and that was their thing they've now switched it all up to get rid they've gotten rid of the barbecue and backed away from that it's now actually i think smoky bones bar and fire grill i think is oh interesting there. so they put the bar first because mm-hmm. i'm gonna focus on that and then rather than barbecue they're they're grilling focus fire and grilling focus so that you know, we know how to grill and all this kind of stuff yeah i feel like that's a more common occurrence where it's not that they rebrand entirely yeah. they just shift emphasis a little bit like we've always had this and we really want you to know about yeah. this you know like remember when uh domino's used to be 30 minutes or less and then they killed all their delivery drivers Remember? Because, like, they would be crashing, trying yeah. to get everywhere in 30 minutes or less, and suddenly they weren't about speed anymore. They were going to be about – and I don't remember if first they went to price or to taste. That's right. But I'm trying to think of when – how long ago that was that they stopped. Like the mid-80s. Was it's that been a while. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while. But so it used to be, you know, the faster we can get you the pizza <laughs> fastest. And then when people died, they had to shift. So they were still making pizza, but, you know, they re – they didn't rebrand. They just, you know, shifted emphasis. Well, yeah, that, that's interesting that you bring Domino's up because I was just sitting here thinking about the other most recent Domino's, which isn't really a rebrand, but when they basically admitted uh, really publicly, you know, our pizza's bad and <laughs> we're <laughs> like, we're going to not Also a long-standing part of their brand. Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, that, that actually, well, when that it gets there into 30 minutes or less, successful. you know. I mean. So wait, yeah. I'm sorry. So they succeeded with the our pizza's bad well, I think they succeeded in – it's not really so much a rebrand, like I said, it's, <laughs> right. as much as it is just like a mea culpa. Like, okay, you're right. Our pizza is actually really bad, and we're just going to make it not as bad. Right. I mean, that that's kind of a, a fascinating message to be putting out there to people, but it seems to have basically taken. I think, I think yeah. basically everybody got the message, okay <laughs> – I'll give Domino's a second chance if I thought it was terrible. Right. So, I mean, that's just the shift in advertising strategies. I think what you're talking about, too, is a whole shift. It is an advertising strategy, but it's a demographic shift, which is a little harder to pull off. So it's not like, you know, we love you. You're our loyal client base. And let's remind you of this or that. But let's appeal to an entirely new group, which is really hard. to. It's really tough, especially since everybody wants to appeal to that, you know, whatever the 20 to 35 disposable Mm -hmm. income demographic is. So. You know, everyone's racing into that, but you know, old people need a place to go eat too. So there's sure. there is that market. Yeah, it's hard that, that that you saw that with car companies. You know, like Oldsmobile. This is not your father's Oldsmobile. Right. That never seems to work to try to like convince young people that 
we're actually cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it, but Fabo seems to have done it. Yeah. I think, is there any other restaurants that have tried to sort of shift that whole image? I mean, KFC used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. It's things like that. But in terms of a major shift, boy, I don't know. It's, it's hard to do. You know, yeah. You get put in your your box and 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 there there you sit. Similar to branding, you know, as a this day, everybody's supposed to have their personal brand and and all that. And you know, we've talked in the past about how I think back around the new year, we're talking about how I hadn't I've been sort of off of social media a little bit, not not emphatically so, but just sort of. Wasn't enjoying it, and so it wasn't on it as much. So I didn't, you know, we talked about how to find, you know, how to find food writing and things like that if you're not just clicking on links from Twitter or, or Facebook. But that has me thinking because I've got um, a lot of articles coming out now from social from Southern Living. I want to let people know they're out there. I got a book coming out in uh, September, the Revised History of the Barbecue book uh, coming out, and so I'm thinking, okay. You know, it, in this day and age, it's one thing for like me to go find things to read. I know I, I know alternate ways to do that, but. Ha- and I just thought those out there because I'm not sure. You know, should, do I need to get back on social media actively in order to build that brand up? And you know, with book coming out or things like that, can you know, do writers and food people in general need to be on social media today to succeed? Are there other routes of sort of building your brand or building your well, you know, an audience without doing that? Like all things, I guess it depends on your definition of success. But if yeah. you want to sell your book, I'd get back on there. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think there's any replacement for it. And it's so cheap. Yeah, it's cheap. Which doesn't have to be. I mean, obviously, companies invest a tremendous yeah. amount of money in their social media presence. But for a writer who has nothing but, you know, his or her computer, um, yeah, I think social media is still very effective. Yeah. I mean, there's different. Well, obviously, we, we talked about the power of te- television an episode or two ago. I mean, getting on television is probably the single biggest way to, to build a brand, even if you – regardless of what you are. There's no other way to get in front of millions of people that w- that way. But uh, I'm trying to think of other folks who have built up a reputation or built up a readership without being very ha- very active on social media who just sort of it gets built up some other way in this day and age. Or is it the case? Well, there are other ways, but none of them are as easy. I mean, yeah. you could win a Pulitzer Prize for your book, and I think people <laughs> will read it rather whether you tweet yeah. about it or not. You know, um, Yeah, if you're published in The New Yorker. I mean, if you are associated with some sort of prestige brand that's a separate brand from yours you're in pretty good stead but otherwise i don't really see it well it's truly how do you how to make a lot of money uh how to become famous as a writer well first become famous right then write a book (laughs) or have somebody write a book for you is the Mm -hmm. amazing thing yeah just recently the um (laughs) all the democratic presidential hopefuls released all their their tax returns and so you know all these senators you have like million dollar incomes and like where do they make that much money? It's all from books, you know. Mm. So like even like an AB Klobuchar, somebody you may not, you know, doesn't have a huge presence, is making hundreds of thousands of dollars off the book. So I guess you could get elected to office and then then write a, a cookbook that might might get things out there. But. Well, that used to always be the way that the um the every first lady had to have a cookbook. Oh yes, you know, yeah. every governor <laughs> his wife had a cookbook. I, I don't. I wonder. I don't know if that still happens anywhere. Uh, the, it's so retro. The, the spouse having a Yeah, a yeah, the first lady's cookbook. Yeah, like, um, gosh. I remember Lady Bird Johnson's, which was a well-known cookbook. Yeah, with their, um, I mean, there are a number of them. You, you still see them at used book sales. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah, they were all over. I'll have to look up. I don't know when the last one was issued. Yeah, because— Or maybe someone's working on one now. Uh, yeah, Michelle Obama did you know, that biography. That, right, that's right. Not, uh, I don't not remember exactly. the cookbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not um, a cookbook. I'm trying to think, did Laura Bush do a cookbook? 
Well, these first ladies all did books. Yeah. You know, obviously Laura Bush was a librarian. They had books that they put out, but I don't know if they did cookbooks. And I'm thinking now specifically of the governors. Like there yeah. was at the state level, you had a number of first lady cookbooks. I don't know what happened to that genre. Yeah, I mean, clearly this day I mean, I do age, know what happened. Yeah. I know exactly what happened to John. Yeah. What I meant to say is I don't know, like, when, which the last yeah. book was issued. You know, well, the first that, lady of Arkansas, which I guess would be Mrs. Clinton, so maybe yeah. not that. But, you know, the first lady of Idaho in 1984 was that last one. I'll have to look it up. This yeah. is an easy one to research. I just don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, it's a, that's a, it's, a, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so lately I've been, you know, Tweeting things out when I write, or you know, linking to it on Facebook and all that, but trying not to get sucked into the, you know, what what these yeah, platforms no, are so good at. There's no, the arguments, you know, the new you know. OS on the iPhone now it tells you how much time you spend each week. <laughs> so it it's like the most depressing thing yeah. on a Sunday night. It's like you were up twenty seven percent this yeah. week. Oh, and that's where I felt like in the past it. it it felt a little bit like being a hamster on the wheel in that you feel like you're doing things. Like I'm tweeting, I'm retreating, I'm building brands. I'm coming, but then you it, later I'm like, well, I don't really feel like it's done that much to build an audience compared to – certainly not compared to the hours and hours you spend writing a really good article that, that people will read and comment on. Or well, they're not going to read unless you put it on social media. Well, somebody, well, somebody else can find it and put it on social media for you. That was, right. That's my, my hope. Sure, you know, sure. Have yeah. a legion of unpaid for sure. <laughs> brand builders out there out there for me. Maybe that's why I just need to hire, hire an intern. That may be the, the key to my life. Is uh, I can think of all kinds of things I could have an intern do. Sure. You know? So so maybe I'll do that. All right. So I want to kind of shift gears for a minute here. Um, when we were talking back, sorry, a minute ago when we were talking about Fabo, uh, it got me thinking. You know, we're talking about connecting to to different audiences and how this brand is trying to connect to uh, like a younger audience. This is maybe a bit of a stretch, but it, it reminded me, Hannah, of your most recent review of uh, Malagon. Now, and, and I don't want to, you know, rehash the the whole uh, argument about like whether critics should review restaurants or whatever it is that people, people <laughs> are mad really about. Yeah. Um, should reviewers review restaurants? We could talk about it for yeah, an hour. <laughs> uh, but anyway, toward towards the end of your review, there there is um, an interesting line that really stuck with me. Um, well, actually, it was a, c- a couple of paragraphs, not just a line. But what you were getting into is that you, you said that the food and beverage scene is about to hit adolescence. Can you do you, you want to explain what you meant by that? Yeah. So what I meant is so legitimately, it's kind of in those early teen years. And I dated the start of the current Charleston scene to the first Beard Award, which was won by Robert Stelling at Hominy Grill. So it's funny, this this review came out the day after mm-hmm. Hominy Grill was closing. So the timing was really quite 2008, perfect. So- yeah, 2008. So so I was saying, so that puts us, you know, so we're 11, 12 years in. So what happens next? Because I do think there was, when Charleston was new to the culinary world, and obviously, I mean, the contemporary culinary world, I know the city has been around for a very long time, but in terms of, um, you know, the tastemakers who are currently, you know, choosing magazine covers in New York, um, Charleston was just charming. You know, that was a word that was associated with it. It was, you know, just a Darling place. I mean, we even have a restaurant called yeah. the Darling, you know, like that really. It, and that's what it was. It was just people just were so I, I'm trying to think of other words for that. But. Well, it's it, it. I think a lot of it was if you came here from New York or you came here from L.A., it wasn't like anything you found in New York and L.A. It was and, and I think Robert Stelling said, said it well in his when we were talking about Hominy. It's like you sort of gave outsiders 
something that felt like Charleston to them, felt unique. It was darling. It was, but it was also something so local, so unique to the to Charleston, tied into this low country feel and the ingredients. So I think it it gave people a really strong sense of place that they didn't get just anywhere else. Right. Absolutely. That's the positive way to look at it. But I guess what I was going at. I say that's what I think the appeal was. It was the appeal, but I think the appeal too. What the the argument I was trying to make was in many ways analogous to it, it was childish and that no one ever came here and said this is a really challenging scene or I thought about things there that I've never thought about before For, with the exception obviously Brock did some things yeah. that that got people thinking so I don't mean to say across the board there were no exceptions but for the most part people came here because it was comfortable and because although now in the last decade we've gotten better about not you know a replicating the plantation lifestyle that was part of it too it was this part of it's it's free and easy it's you know not hard not challenging not necessarily even sophisticated and i think for folks from new york that was a relief but now we're stuck with what happens next so the the, the thing that's interesting to me is that this point i felt like kind of crystallized uh, a discussion that i've had not even just about uh, the food industry, but about kind of Charleston in general, our, our creative and artistic scene. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Charleston is pretty famous, like nationwide. We we have we have a brand, we have an awareness. Absolutely. Yeah, Travel and Le- Leisure names us the best, or is that Travel? I can't remember. Right, which right. Best cities to you know whole U.S. many years in a row in the running. So it definitely has a. A brand. Nationally. Right. And also, actually, if you're speaking of awards, let's say in terms of the city, mm-hmm. right, we kept winning. What was it? Not the most polite city, the most welcoming yeah, city. What yeah. was the one that we it kept was, winning? It was um, it was most polite, I think. Was it most polite, think, nicest? Yeah. Right, right, right. So, again, yeah. it's that childish thing that we had, like, one mood setting. Like, we're always just mm-hmm. oh, so happy. Okay, Emery, back to you. Yeah, Sorry. So, what, what I think that maybe the thing that's kind of lacking, though, is influence. It doesn't. It doesn't feel as right. influential on right. on a national stage or even on a regional stage as it maybe could be. Right. Okay. <laughs> but that's exactly what I was getting at. That you know, is as I said in the review. You know, you can enjoy the company of a child, but influence. And I don't. I didn't use that word specifically, but it was mm. certainly in mind. So thank you for catching it. But like, you can only accomplish so much as a child. I mean, you are you know by nature by law disenfranchised, and I. So I think that's what I was sort of trying yeah. to get. It's like, and does Charleston care? I don't know. I don't know. Well, well, I mean, it does. It does seem like it seems to me like what's important though is is kind of maybe presenting people this vision though of of a future of Charleston. So I guess like what I've been thinking about lately is that, and this is where I where I think I, like the conversation broadens out just from the food and bev industry is that. So much conversation and so much energy seems to be right now wrapped up around kind of protecting Charleston and protecting its culture from right. from a, like an invasion. Right. But I, I don't know. I think maybe there's a different vision of of the future where Charleston. There's like like we're, we're so worried about protecting who we are and, and protecting us. But maybe there's a, a different vision where there's so much us that we're exporting it. Right. Right. Where. We don't have to worry about other people changing Charleston because Charleston is changing other people. Exactly. Other people want to do yeah. Charleston right. well, stuff, you know. Right. And, exactly right. And maybe it's uh, the adolescent metaphor doesn't. Maybe you could maybe stretch it too much, but because it's, it's it's almost like we did have a big level of influence at some point in certain areas. Like if you think of like Anson Mills, Grits, 
showing up in San Francisco and New York restaurants. The ingredients. But do you attribute that? Do you attribute that to Charleston or to Glenn? Well, Glenn was part of the whole Charleston thing. Yeah. So they're sort of entwined. I suppose so. Um, but I, I, there was a moment, and Brock was certainly huge in, yeah. in, in this. You know, and when people came here, they didn't just come here and go back and write about this charming city they found. Mm-hmm. They they went back to New York and they, they took bourbon and bacon and grits with them. Right. And, and, and so we had that moment of mm-hmm. being go, able to go to New York and say, well— Look at these menu items. These seem sort of familiar. Right. Um, but that didn't last that long, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. influence has has faded. And I think, you know, Brock has left the city. He's now a Nashvilleian and is doing his new thing up there. Um, you know, Glenn Roberts is still going strong with Anson Mills, but I feel like now it's just sort of become part of the – it's just it's part of the culture, right? You've right. got this guy you can get great – that's where you go to get great cornmeal and, and grits from. Are we exporting anything new at this at this stage? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all been causing me a little bit of like heartburn for a while. It's just like right. you know, where where are we going next? And not just thing? that we're not exporting products, but yeah. we're not exporting any kind of philosophy or ideas, right? Yeah. I mean, or right. ideas, right? Because I do feel like there is this big opportunity. Like the world's eyes are on yeah. Charleston, and I don't really know what they've done with it. I, I like what you're saying, Embry, about or, mm-hmm. or, or it's a good thing or a good way to think about it, what you're saying about protecting people from outside from coming in and protecting what we have. But the, pro- the problem with that is look at the hotels going up. Look at right. the Airbnb traffic going up. Look at the visitors flowing in. You, you, you aren't going to keep them out. That's not another point. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think exactly the problem with that is that if if your culture is, is just like a postcard image, then – you you know there, there's not a lot there to grow, right. and it's just going to become a stereotype of itself, and, and it can be very easily overrun. Right? I mean, yeah, yeah. all these hotels ruin the postcards, you know, but yeah. they can't ruin an underlying philosophy. Right? Didn't think so. That I think I think in getting into that is that I feel like Charleston has ambitions of being something like an Austin or a Portland of the Southeast, something, you know, a city that has that kind of an identity and that kind of culture that is exported and is recognized. But at the same time, we, we I feel like we're kind of stuck wanting to be that, but not really able to execute on it, like and not able to make the next step, the, the next leap that's necessary. And I'm not sure how to do that, but. Right. And it was really interesting in writing the review as I formulated this whole theory. Um, I read through so much like psycho- psychology books and just <laughs> about like about growth and development in different stages. And it really is striking how Charleston really does fit into this really immature mindset, at least as a child psychologist would have it. Um, and so as I said in the review, like it's not easy to grow up, like mm-hmm. it's not comfortable and it's, and again, going back to what I said earlier, Charleston likes comfort. Yeah. And now I will say, like, just to to be clear to to readers out there, like, I do think that there is actually a really strong, like, Charleston culture. And, you know, I mean, like, some, some of the things that you're bringing up, like, I mean, yeah, I think there's actually a lot of, like, really interesting and unique things happening here. For it, sure. It's, um, it's just how do you make that that leap from having the potential i like i like i agree that charleston has the potential to become like the southeast southeastern portland yep like that that's that's a realistic vision i think yep. but it's it's hard if a lot of people don't share the vision you know or 
or they want it, but they don't want to put the work into it. Mm-hmm. They don't want the discomfort, I guess, that, like is what you're saying that comes along with exactly with growing like that. Right. And so what growth requires, again, returning to the like psychology books, what growth requires is to identify other viewpoints and, right. and acknowledge other viewpoints. And I think Charleston's been just very slow to do that. Mm hmm. And so, and that's fine. You can do that in Portland, Austin, too. I mean, that's part of what makes them unique is they understand, like, the rest of the world isn't like what this is. Right, right? yeah, you know? exactly, yeah. But, but not to think, and then the difference is Charleston knows that. Charleston knows it's very special, but yeah. it doesn't have to be the best. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's it's that understanding. Like, we're, we're, we're special because of these things. We're not necessarily the best because of these things. Right. It's tricky. So, I mean, again, my vantage point is through food and beverage. That's right, where right, I see right, it. Yeah. And so I can't speak to the city at large, but it certainly does seem to be a factor in play in, in the way restaurants are, are developing over the last couple of years. I do feel like we're at, at this point where we're, we're finally catching the, the things, the seeds that we sowed are finally mm-hmm. fully sprouted and, and, and starting to catch up with, with us in, in a couple of different ways. I mean, one of which would be like, for instance, um, I thought that for a long time we talked about Johnson and Wales, the Culinary Institute, being here in Charleston, and then when it moved to Charlotte, everyone was really worried that it's going to damage the food scene, and the food scene wasn't damaged by it. But I think maybe it actually was in a, in a lot of ways. It just took much, much longer for that to, to play out mm-hmm. because I don't know that we've got that same. Um, we don't have the workforce. <laughs> yeah, but all that force that's generating the ambitious young uh, right. culinarians to to work in it, I think it has a long tail over the course of 10 years where it became the engine that drove it. I think we're really starting to feel a lot of that uh, with, with Reds. I think that's one of it. And the other thing is we made this a great place to come visit through all the restaurants, which was a, a big piece of it. And then when everybody starts to come visit, all of a sudden now we're, we don't know what to do with it you know, and, and how to how to handle that. With with the, the, you know, how to basically take that and rather than putting up our, you know, complaining about all the cookie cutter restaurants and the things like that, it's figuring out okay, how do you handle this wave that's now coming to Charleston and how do you turn it around? These aren't the hipster foodies who are who are coming here because they read somewhere and you know the, you got to go to Charleston. And it, stuff is happening here. These are this is the that's the early wave. This is the second wave of people who are coming to Charleston because everyone else comes to Charleston because I saw it in the magazine because this that and the other. Uh, how do we bring them into town and and give them an experience that's going to appeal to them that reinforces Charleston as opposed to either you know sets up this 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 dichotomy between oh that's the tourist stuff and this is the the real Charleston I think that's a piece of it so what is a so in terms of adolescence you're talking growing up so in your thinking through it one's open mindedness right right and, and um, what about a sense of a of because um, I think a big thing about growing up is becoming comfortable with who you are and right. becoming you know having your sense of identity, and you tend to be really protective of it when you're self-conscious about it. Right. Anything else that is a thing you do when you grow up? That yeah, I mean, I guess the only other thing is there is part of growth and part of maturation is taking certain risks. And obviously, you know, toddlers take risks when they learn how to walk. But like, there is more of a sense that like exploring. Right, your world gets bigger and bigger as you grow up right and gets and so I think so there's that too just expanding your worldview and 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 doing things I mean that's really you know what adolescence is all about right you're doing some kind of crazy things um and we haven't 
had a lot of crazy things happen in Charleston. I mean, people really do kind of play by the book for the most part. So I, I don't know if that, you know, if that makes us more mature, if that's just part of the stage we need to go through that I feel like we've been resisting is just, and I, I get it, I get it that it's really expensive to run a restaurant. And it doesn't, it, I understand that this is a very risk averse market right now, but I just wonder if, if, if that's part of the program too. It's also a scale problem. Like, um, what gets you to one stage isn't what's That's going right. to get you to, to the next. Right. And I don't know that we've quite cracked the nut on what does, okay, what does getting to the next level look like? Mm-hmm. I do think, you know, the, the stage that got us to 2008, a lot of that was basically, you know, looking inward and looking at the ingredients that we had here and the traditions we had here and figuring out how to incorporate those into restaurants in a confident way that was like, okay, this is, this is part of what Charleston is. We're going to put this in the menu. We're not going to worry that it's not French. And it's not because, mm-hmm. and so that sort of happened. And then you see that cul- culminate in, in the, I think led directly into what made us so special in 2008, 2009. Oh, absolutely. And so, I mean, these things are cyclical. Yeah. And so maybe we've been through them before. I'm just dating this current evolution to 2008 because okay. I do feel like that's when food media, national food media, and the world's attentions were sort of drawn to Charleston. I'm not saying that good work didn't occur before that. I'm just saying if we look at our current life cycle, which I'm dating back to that point, I feel like this is where we are right now. Yeah, I don't think we're going to solve this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's it's a solvable question. I I just, I I thought it was, I just thought thought it was a really interesting discussion to have because, um, like I said, I've had conversations like this with other people in other areas of, of like civic life and it just it seemed it seemed really interesting to me the way that just reading this that kind of just crystallized this thing for me like oh that's what's happening here that like we're kind of entering like charleston's teenager phase i, I guess yeah. of of um of its national prominence but yeah that that can be really challenging but it's also an opportunity Absolutely. And I'm glad you used the word influence. And now I'm sorry I didn't. But I think that was very much embedded in what I was trying to say, Mm -hmm. which is right. Like, do we want people just to look at us, which is what children do? Or do we want to have something to tell them? Which is what adults do, Yeah, I mean, I I guess guess maybe for a long time we've been really – we've been satisfied with, like, impressing ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? And impressing other people in in town. And that's been good enough. And, you know, that's – there's nothing to say that – having self-confidence is, is wrong or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm not suggesting anything to the contrary, but is impressing, you know, the, the, uh, your neighbors, is, is that going to be enough to impress somebody from the other side of the country? You know, it, right. And that, uh, that seems to be like kind of the, the next leap that we need to, to make is that we're not, there's something to be said for, you know, protecting like your culture and everything, but right. we, we need, we do need to be thinking more outside of the city. Like, Right, because to me, I mean, what was really in my mind with that review, if you're so insular, so obviously this was a review about who they want to come to their restaurant and they want to, you know, really keep that as a very elite group. And so it was very, you know, I had very much in mind, like, you know, kids want to be with their mom. They want to be with the people they know. Right. I get it. It's comfortable in both directions. But I really think you need to look beyond that. All 
right. And that is all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the grown-up podcasting studios at the Post and Courier Building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, help other listeners find us, too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you access your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the fame Marie Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.